0: Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Ray Lucas. Dr. Lucas, Ray was the Senior Associate Dean for Faculty and Health Affairs at George Washington School of Medicine and Health Sciences. He has now transitioned into a new role or maintained an old role, but he is going to tell us all about these transitions. He as maintaining his associate dean for continuing professional education role, and then of course an associate professor of emergency medicine. Please do tell us your story. How does an emergency medicine doc um, get in faculty affairs?
1: Awesome. So in my career here at GW, I basically sort of found myself primarily as a clinician educator, um, was the I uh, ran a fellowship in disaster medicine. I was the residency program director, the vice chair for education uh, for my Department of Emergency Medicine, and I was approached by our dean. We had a reorganization of the medical center at GW about 10 or 12 years ago, and I was approached by the dean um, who was trying to rapidly fill some spots here and to oversee the MD program as the head education dean. And I, of course, was very flattered um, that he asked me. But the other thing that I had done in my career here is I was fairly involved in faculty governance and had been a rep to the faculty senate, Um, twice had been chair of the executive committee of the faculty senate. So I really was sort of tuned into faculty issues. And our dean for faculty affairs position had been vacant for a couple of years. And so I sort of got back to him and said, I'm... Flattered that you wanted me to do this education job, but you know, I'd be sort of jumping the line and supervising other assistant deans who've been in the dean's office longer than I have. I really think there's a need to have some energy in the faculty affairs space and essentially ask him to appoint me as the associate dean for faculty affairs instead.
0: Wow. So just hang on a second. How did you? Well, why was the, I guess I'm curious, why was it vacant for such a long period of time? And was it vacant because they couldn't find someone or did they kind of just forget about it or think it wasn't important? Why was it left alone for so long?
1: Yeah, so we had this, um, our, we had a, we used to be a medical center um, governance structure here um, and under a new uh, um, president of the university basically did away with this infrastructure of um, of a medical center and separated us into three separate schools: medicine, public health, and nursing. And at, under the old system, the office of faculty affairs supported all three schools, um, and so the dean of faculty affairs supported all three schools. And so. Um, Then we had a new dean who was just an interim dean, and you know how hard it is to fill spots when you're interim, et cetera. And so it just kind of, you know, the office was, you know, bumbling along and doing stuff, um, but just didn't have the person in place to really pull it all together and and look forward, you know, be forward-looking. So
0: So you get into the office, so he agrees and pivots and appoints you as the senior associate dean. Uh, did, did you even have any administrative support? Was there any infrastructure or programming? Or did you or were you rebuilding this like after a big fire? What, how did it work?
1: So, we, I mean, we had a functioning office. We had an office staff of uh, an executive director who started the same day I did, so who was also new, and three additional staff. Um, and, you know, the basic mechanics of, Hiring the university employed faculty and getting faculty appointments for everyone were there. And on the faculty development side, we had a single um, semi retired um, uh, pediatrician who was basically doing faculty development, which just consisted of a series of faculty development workshops around whatever mm-hmm. topics he could get people to talk about. So there wasn't a lot of cohesiveness there, although, you know, the basic pieces were there.
0: Right. All right, so you're, you're in, the, in the position then, and how, what do you go about doing? How do you build it?
1: Well, the, the first thing I did was really, you know, it was an office that didn't have a reputation for functioning well because it took a long time. We, we, like, you know, you've seen one academic medical center, you've seen one academic medical center. Right. And the, right. You, the uniqueness of GW is that the School of Medicine, the hospital, the practice plan for the physicians are all three separately incorporated Organizations. Yes. In addition to that, the, the our Department of Pediatrics is at Children's Hospital across town. Again, a whole separate organization. So we, even though we have about 1,200 full-time faculty in our school, only about 150 of them are are employed by the university. They're all they're employed by other organizations, and so we have this faculty appointment process that was on paper in email and in files and, you know, and it just took forever to get someone processed through. And you had no idea of knowing where anybody was, whether it was in our office or the provost office or on the Dean's desk or whatever. And so it took a lot of, um, streamlining workflow. And we actually created a, we worked with a programmer in the department of RT and created our own home grown faculty application portal and basically made a paperless system, um, first for the office
0: that was probably an incredible win and really set you on a good course i'm sure everybody was happy about that
1: yeah people were happy and you know it made it a lot easier and at any point in time and at click you could say well this is what you submitted and you're missing this piece or it went to the provost office two days ago and it should be back you know next week or you know whereas before it was two days of like sleuthing to see where the problem was even when someone complained so and
0: then trick or treat! Oh, we found it behind somebody's desk.
1: Yeah, right.
0: See, I'm, I'm weaving the, the trick or treat theme.
1: There were more tricks than treats at that point.
0: See, now was that a a big lift for the dean to support financially building this this thing? I mean, how do you go about selling somebody? Listen, you got to invest in this. It's going to be good. Versus them saying it's fine. Just you know, tighten up the process. How do you sell somebody to invest in? That especially when money's tight I mean maybe it wasn't as tight years ago when you started doing this but how does that work
1: no it wasn't it wasn't really difficult we already had a a homegrown faculty database that worked well that years ago one of our programmers had done and he's an internal resource we didn't have to really pay an outside person to do this it was just a matter of getting on his list on uh, work products to do or in his workflow and he built the application module as an add-on to our faculty database, so that once something went through, it automatically sort of put them into our faculty database and did away with that uh, data entry function that we had in our office.
0: And that I, just staying on this topic of databases, because we at Hopkins are we're looking at Interfolio and trying to. Mm-hmm streamline and put together all of our systems which are mostly homegrown as well is your system that you built then uh, the one-stop shop for hiring and promotion and tracking um tracking you know progress through leadership positions or a participation in your faculty development offerings
1: no kind of data? no it's not truly an enterprise-wide system we do um because most of our faculty are not employed right. oh, by right. us the faculty get hired through the HR platform of whatever organization that they're working for mm-hmm. um, so it's kind of a two-step process yeah um, so it's not integrated with the platform that you know where the ads are placed and the electronic applications for a job that sort of stuff is in a separate system yeah. but what is nice is we it then when they get submitted for their faculty application to the school, not the, not the hiring for the job, but this one, it, it is in a single database. We use the same platform for um, promotion and tenure dossiers and uploading them there. Um, we use the faculty database as a real-time feed to our faculty directory on the website um, we use it to track things like faculty conflict of interest and stuff like that. So we've managed to leverage it, I think, to as much as we could. Um, but it's, it's not enterprise-wide like we would all like to have.
0: But it sounds like it's a huge leap ahead of us, that's for sure. All right, so you build this nice system. So then, then what do you do?
1: I think the other piece that I really focused – well the two other pieces that I think I focused on was there was a lot. And I think this is a common across the country from talking to my GFA colleagues. There's, and from the faculty standpoint, survey national results. We had a lot of dissatisfaction with our APT process and, you know, the clinician educator types are, you know, really feel disenfranchised by this, you know, how the system works and, or doesn't work for them. Right. You know, so the other push that I had was really trying to, you know, standardize, make sure things were standardized, I right? set up a task force to revise or update our APT criteria to include things like a, an actual definition of scholarship, um, positive language around team science, positive language that, you know, contribution to a work of scholarship was more important than the actual order of authorship on the paper. So try to do some tangible things to get people to feel like the system was working for them. And then just a really a lot of outreach, a lot of outreach, you know, workshops and how do you build a teaching portfolio workshops about understanding the, the promotion criteria. I would go to departmental meetings, a lot of one-on-one meetings with chairs. And so I think trying to build some uh, confidence and um, in, in the APT process here was probably my second big task, and that's really where I went into this from my background in faculty governance, because one of the things that happened when I was the, in the faculty senate before, and it had happened years before, and nothing that came out of it was um, issues around updating our APT criteria.
0: Yeah.
1: What? And it's still not perfect, and everybody's not happy, and no. you know, whenever you have an evaluative process of people, and you know, there's always people that are going to feel like, you know, they should have got something that they didn't. But, you know, I think we we moved the needle a little bit in a positive direction.
0: Yeah, you, you had to. And it sounds like you had a similar maybe experience that I did that you mentioned earlier, that when you start with an office that maybe has either no reputation or a reputation of one of, oh, that, that office is a place you go when you're in trouble, when you mm-hmm. need some remediation or some discipline because something's wrong with you that to to change that culture and that uh, reputation as being no place that is helpful and supportive and is on your side is that's not an easy lift but as you said it's a lot that just comes down to relationship building so very
1: much so and I and looking back I think probably the best part of this job and the faculty affairs and faculty development is the relationships that you make with individual faculty um, and the thanks that you get. Um, I do a lot. I mean, like everybody else in my position um, around the country, you do a lot of um, one-on-one meetings and encourage people and help them understand how the place works. And, you know, you kind of think they're going to get this from their mentor or their department chair, but sometimes faculty just need to hear it from somebody else. Um, Before it sinks in, and that's been really rewarding uh, to me, and I've gotten a lot of you know personal satisfaction out of that.
0: Yeah, totally agree with you. What percent effort were you when you first started off in that role, and has it grown or changed until your your recent um, shift? Mm -hmm.
1: So I started as a sixty percent effort in the dean's office with the title of associate dean for faculty affairs and professional development. And my portfolio was essentially the faculty affairs office, faculty development, and oversight of our CME office. Um, and then a couple of years later, uh, the dean asked me to add some more things on. I added the health affairs function um, because we don't really have a clinical dean because we don't have we don't own our clinical environment here. Um, so then I added. I was elevated to senior associate dean, so I became part of his like senior leadership team Mm -hmm. and in addition to that I added on uh, managing the relationship with our clinical partners um, overseeing the office that did strategic planning and accreditation and um, things like that so it was a it was a a lot Um, and so then I bumped up to 80 percent in the dean's office and still worked about a day a week in the ER.
0: Wow wow that's that's a lot. How did you um, get into that strategic component and that, that kind of that 20% bump? How did you get that level of expertise or how were you known as someone that he could hit up to, to do that work? Or was that just another natural kind of instinct with your governance interests and your, your background?
1: Well, I had been part of uh, the team. We had done a strategic plan a couple of years before, and so I was part of the team that helped oversee that. So so I think I had that experience behind me. And really what that office did was really continue its um, – in some places they're called like an office of institutional effectiveness or, for, you know, for – the CQI, um, standards from the LCME, um, does all that sort of stuff. And so then, and it was a well-functioning office with a really smart associate dean who sort of oversaw it. So it wasn't, it wasn't too much of a lift for me to, to do that. I think the, the big piece, and we had, again, a minor reorg when somebody left, um, and somebody need, they, these, this office needed to report up to somebody at the senior associate dean level, and it happened to me, me. (laughs) So it was good.
0: So tell us about your Center for Faculty Excellence. I'm curious about
1: that. Oh, I'm glad you asked. That's a treat, not a trick. And probably, yay. Happy yay, (laughs) Happy Halloween. And if you really want some... And that's where you get the really good candy. It's not the, you know, the cheap stuff. It's yeah. the good chocolate candy that we all like to get on Halloween. Is in our Center of Faculty Excellence. So, again, one of the things I was able to do and get resources for was to hire an associate dean for um, – her title's changed a little bit over the years, but currently her current title is Associate Dean for Faculty and Organizational Development. And we basically became very deliberate around our efforts in faculty development. Um, and we had had this longstanding master teacher program that was was very well received. And I think we're in our 17th year or something now that, that predated me and a tradition of these like faculty development workshops that were, you know, sometimes successful and sometimes not. And so we basically and then we had this growing community of people who were interested in uh, leadership development and in Um, educational research and education scholarship, you know, especially the faculty in clinical departments who weren't real hardcore clinician scientists doing, you know, clinical trials or, or biomedical research. And so we wrapped all this up into the Center of Faculty Excellence, and it's mentoring programs, leadership development programs, all things for faculty related to teaching and learning, Uh, established the Academy of Education Scholars, where you have a peer group of people that are doing education research with some support around statistics and study design. Um, And it's been, I think, very successful, very well received. We have physical space for the center where there's, you know, hoteling space for faculty that, you know, are on campus and need to do something for the day. Um, And, And not only, I think, have we really moved the needle and changing practice around better teaching here um, and increased education scholarship, but it's another one of those outward signs to your faculty that we're here for you, we care about you, Mm -hmm. we want you to be successful, and this is something that's that's for you.
0: That is amazing. Now, was the the genesis of this center, it it evolved... um, from your, you, you said you wanted to be more deliberate with the faculty development offering. So I'm mm-hmm. curious, and when you brought in the uh, this associate dean to, to run these programs, uh, did this, was this a result of your work and your your publication, your, your 2018 publication in academic medicine on leadership development programs? You did a national survey of all um, leadership, all, all the academic medical centers, and medical schools and found, you know, all the competencies and the issues and the, the ways mm-hmm. we we most, many of us have these kinds of programs. And so I'm just, I'm wondering, a chicken egg, did you think, how do we do this and how, so you did the national survey and then you built the center? Or were, were they parallel tracks? Did the center start coming and you hired this person and then yeah. it put you on the track to looking at these, you know, competencies and leadership and what is sure. it and how do we do it? How did that happen?
1: Great, great question. So um, I have to acknowledge Ellen Goldman, who's our associate dean for faculty and organizational development. She was didn't have a dean title, but she's, she's an EDD, has her degree. She's got a background and teaches leadership at the doctoral level in our school of education here. And really, the vision for the um, Center for Faculty Excellence and bringing it all together was was hers. Um, but the leadership development, you know, establishing a faculty leadership program, was one of my initial goals when I first took the job. Before I brought Ellen on, and I did a fair amount of looking in and looking out about how to do something that's really going to be meaningful and effective. And we had this master teacher program already that was very, that's cohort based, already very successful. And I wanted to sort of transpose that sort of cohort model into something else. And what I found was when you go to the literature, you know, there's like a handful of programs that um, really feed into the uh, the the published literature on content and what works and what doesn't work, you know, you know, big name things like ELAM, which we all know isn't a very terrific program, you know, but e you know, there's many papers about ELAM, you know, in academic medicine and other sorts of, you know, journals. But if you go to the web and you look at all the schools that do like faculty development leadership programs, they're like all over the place. And you're like, they're all over the place, but what are they doing? And how come nobody else is writing about it? And how can we, what can we learn to help? I wanted to learn how could I inform to be the best program that I could build here. So that was why we did this survey, was to basically figure out what everybody's doing in their leadership development programs around the country. And um, I think what I learned is, you know, I dove into the leadership training literature and learned about the importance of You need a leadership competency model to frame your curriculum. And, you know, it's not just bringing in a bunch of talking heads to talk about leadership topics. You have to have multiple, just like we teach our students and our residents, you need multiple approaches to learning in order to effectively do this. Mm -hmm. Um, You need some sort of project base where the participant can apply what they're learning in a form of work-based learning. Then you need some, you know, you need some outcome um, measures as well, so... Doing that paper, I learned a lot. Yeah. I think I shared something with the community about what the current state is of here, and I think it helped me build a good program for us.
0: Yeah, it sure did. I remember when that came out, I was just bowled over. I thought, oh, he, you know, just reporting on his, when I first read the title, his program there. Great. And then I looked at him like, wait, this is a national survey? How in the world did you pull that off? And that, that is just huge to first of all, get the thing organized and then implement it and get the data back and evaluate it. I mean, that is a huge lift and it's not done a lot in our GFA family. So that was a a really important contribution. And it is going to be, well, it is on the uh, facultyfactory.org website where we have a new searchable archive of really important contributions in our space. So thank you for putting that Mm -hmm. out there for us.
1: Well, no, and and I... Oh, some credit to the AAMC because they partnered. I was able to partner with them to help do this. Um, they, ought, they have a tradition of having a sort of a catalog in the GFA portion of their website around leadership development programs. And they would try to survey member schools so they could keep that catalog updated. And they hadn't done it in a, in a few years. And so, you know, I was willing, you know, as part of this scholarly project, I was basically helping them update their catalog and gave them that information for their catalog, and then by partnering with them and having, you know, this co-branded um, emails out to folks from both us and the AMC, I think helped us with a really good um, response of our to our survey.
0: Well, that's really so. valuable nugget that you just shared, but it's a nugget like like a chocolate nugget for trick or treat. But the nugget is that. What I like, what you just said, is that you not only, you found a way, I don't know if it was on purpose or not, but producing some scholarship that was important for you in your space at the micro level, but had the macro impact nationally for your colleagues, but also for national organizations. So that was like, it it made sense on a lot of different levels and the value was appreciated by different levels for different reasons. And so I think that's a, an important lesson to learn that when those of us listening to, to this right now and thinking about projects, uh, we all have important things that are important at our local level. But how can mm-hmm. we leverage national interest and local interest to kind of gain some support to – and then, the, as you said, like the double AMC to make things happen that it's it suits all of our interests to move something forward. And I'm thinking of course of our the recent late career faculty survey that that mm-hmm. um, we did through the research and project development subcommittee and that was also a national endeavor and, and like you we work with Valerie Dandar at the WAMC mm-hmm. It was amazing. And mm-hmm. I I love working with her because she kind of pushed our survey out for faculty members age 55 and older. And, and that's another example, Ray, how, you know, we're looking at our faculty aging. And so the same, same with you, that what for me on a private personal micro level, I'm a gerontologist and interested in aging and seeing, and, and Hopkins was starting to, to go down the road of, you know, we have all these late career faculty members who remont, want to remain engaged and, and who are retiring. And, they have this you know, institutional uh, memory and root, they're so rooted and we really don't have much to offer them. So that right. question at our local level led to, the, of course, the national and global statistics of people aging. And so it just made sense. Hey, we all need to work on this together. And right. so I think that's those kind of projects that make sense um, vertically and horizontally are, are the most fruitful.
1: I couldn't agree with you more. And if you, you know, for, you know, I love going to the GFA meeting. I think that's the, I'm going to really miss that by stepping out of my faculty affairs role. But as you, is, even though we all have different dynamics and a different shop, you know, similar issues face faculty at all of our medical schools in this country. Um, and, you know, if you're going to go and investigate something or study something around an issue, it's going to be important to everyone in our community. Mm-hmm. And so if you can somehow find a way to involve others or involve more than one school and what you're looking at, um, I, th- I think it's important for the greater faculty affairs community to try to do that. Yeah. I think a big, I'd like to plug the research committee and the GFA because I think they, they are very supportive of, you know, trying to bring people, and projects together, and they have a little template mm-hmm. of, uh, of how to propose a study that they may want to help, you know, right. sanction, so right. to speak, for lack of a better word, and that actually gave, and I actually, using that template helped me work with the uh, AAMC and convince them to sort of come on to this project with me.
0: That's awesome. Thank you. Well, tell us, um, if you don't mind, you know, when I introduced you, you know, you said that you know, you're stepping out of that role and you've mentioned it now. It's been, I guess, well, a month today, October 31. Mm-hmm. Uh, what What were the factors that were associated with you, you know, gearing up to making the transition? Well, first of all, tell us again, I've forgotten uh, how long have you been in the role and what made you decide or what helped you think, all right, now it's time for a transition?
1: I've been in the role for about seven or eight years. Um, I think there were two kind of drivers for me, or a couple of drivers. One, I had the CME office that was in my portfolio. Um, That's a good functioning office. I mean, we have accreditation with commendation. I have an executive director there who's just amazing at her job. Um, But it's a a space in my portfolio where I had not given the same level of attention as I had in traditional faculty affairs and faculty development. And so I really wanted to you know, be able to have some dedicated time there. But as we all know in this community, faculty affairs is at work, right? right? It's a lot of meetings, it's a lot of stuff, and you don't want to turn faculty away. And, you know, you give up control of your own calendar where you have an administrative assistant who can just schedule things and put things in an open spot of your calendar. <laughs> you know, next thing you know, I like come to work Monday and I realize I'm book solid, like the next. Three days straight with meetings, and it was—I I think it was a little personally unsustainable for me. So I wanted to scale back in a meaningful way. The other is a little so that I could focus on CME. Um, the other two—one is philosophical. I think it's good for institutions not to have people in these roles forever. You know, I think eight to ten years is a good is a good time frame, and you know, and that's not—I mean, we have a lot of—I have a lot of GFA colleagues have been doing what they've been doing for many, many years, and and I'm terrific with that, but I think for a school like mine, um, I think some change is good. Um, and I feel like I came, I made positive change, I built some things, and it's time to let somebody else make it better than I could. Um, and then the last is personal. I fell into the same trap that in my faculty affairs role I counseled junior faculty on is that I got involved in administration way too early in my career. And it really hurt me from a scholarship standpoint. And so here I am running the APT process and counseling tenure track faculty and you know other people of how to get promoted to the rank of professor, and I'm still an associate professor myself. And so I really needed some time to sort of regroup and have a little less on my plate so I can do the things I need to do personally in the scholarship side of the house so I can get myself promoted.
0: Wow. Thank you for your honesty, Ray. that's that's something. Um, I think that's really you know some important piece of wisdom there. The eight to ten years kind of as freshen things up and um, minimally acknowledging that you know times change and things change and people change, and it's minimally helpful to have people at the table in our offices in our fields of vision who have different ideas and the diversity by all its means
1: mm-hmm. then we
0: get can get into a rut of thinking that, well, my programs are great or my workshops are, right. are wonderful. And I, I hear good things about them. And, and if we don't have that humility to recognize that there are diff- new junior faculty new mid-career faculty, late career, anybody coming around the, the bend who has a good idea but maybe don't feel empowered to offer it up because we're you know fingernails clawing into and hanging on to and owning and marking our territory yeah that, that that can really be yeah we have to be more nimble uh, as academic medicine is changing so rapidly and 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 just everything and with technology is changing and these disruptive innovations we talk about, we have to really Mm -hmm. be open. And I, I love that. um, Your sensibility of saying, you know what? Um, I'm not going to like hunker in there snug as a bug and, and not move.
1: That's kind of been my MO for my career. You know, when I was the residency director in my department, I did it for eight or 10 years, made some improvements, made some changes and sort of, created my own position by convincing my chair to make me vice chair of education so that I could then pull up one of my assistant directors into that role and do some you know development for them and have them climb up the ladder um, and then move on to some another way that I could make a positive contribution to my organization.
0: You know and I also appreciate your honesty Ray talking about scholarship generation and being promoted that's it's so uh, it's a sensitive topic for all of our faculty and especially for you to put that out there. I really appreciate that. I I also am an associate dean. I mean associate professor in gerontology and that's been my my big bugaboo as well because I'm I'm not a clinician. I don't see patients and I'm not even really doing research. I'm 100% in my dean role. So mm-hmm. that challenge of you know doing research and producing scholarship and that walking that line of being recognized in Hopkins by the faculty as someone who's got some credibility and some chops, it's hard walking that line from faculty saying, okay, you get me, you understand me because you're in the same game. And so I feel also uh, that pull of, you know, I can, uh, I'm okay with the junior faculty and the junior leadership programs, but there's a certain bar where, you know, the, the, tenured full professors have the eyebrow raised looking at me like you know how yeah. many harder ones do you have and how many hundred right. publications do you have and when was your last nobel uh, then i kind of feel like man eh, never mind it's just me i'm um, just don't mind me but that that is that um you're uh, talking about that is, is something i think that a lot of us and that's why the research and project development subcommittee, we, we tried to put that workshop together. and It was a pretty successful workshop, I think, in mm-hmm. Chicago, uh, h- helping our friends in the GFA world mm-hmm. at least think about how to produce right. scholarship and how to do research and how to do program evaluation, all the while recognizing that just what you said, Ray, uh, just like our faculty, there, we don't have chunks of time dedicated to, to do this and a right. lot of the work especially in our field is not certainly not amenable to randomized controlled trials and we don't have a mm-hmm. lot of labs sitting around of uh, people who will uh, help us collect these data and do these projects so it's it's tough right. and i and i applaud your honesty of saying you know what no this is um i'm tapping out and i'm going to do what i tell my faculty to do
1: right that's that's pretty much it and you know we'd and for me i think it's the reality is, is as you move up and if you want to do more, um, in the world of academia, you know scholarship and rank are kind of the currency of the realm. Um, and you know, I think I don't think I would want to be a dean of a medical school, but maybe I would like to be a department chair. And I don't think I'm going to be hired as a department chair or competitive in a search if I, as an associate professor. And does it mean I couldn't do the job? No, I think I could totally do the job. Right. But you still right. need the credentials that are going to get you in the door. And that's the piece that people, you know, I think forget about. And I think where I, in my own personal professional journey, probably got off track a little bit and, you know, see that it's that it's time to get back on.
0: Good for you. And I know you're going to do it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. It's actually kind of fun being, in you know, this past month, being a little more integrated into my department because, you know, that's where my professional identity is anyway, and I still continue to be clinically active, so that's good. Yeah.
0: Well, this has been a great conversation, Ray. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with before we go out to, to do some trick-or-treating and celebrate the Nats?
1: Um, I think I've just to the rest of the community, you know, I, I just really want to put a plug for the GFA conference and the GFA group and the committee work that goes on there. It is, if, if you are listening to this and you're not involved in the GFA or are or only peripherally involved, would really encourage you to do that. I think it's a wonderful organization, they do so much. For us, as a as a community of people that do faculty affairs and faculty development, and um, I think it's it made my life easier and certainly helped my successes in, in this role. And I think if, if you're not if you're not going to it or being part of it, you you really should.
0: Wow, well, well said, Ray. I couldn't agree with you more. That's definitely our family. Well, folks, you've been listening to Dr. Ray Lucas. He's at GW. Go check him out if you want to. Have him come to your place or talk to him. Um, It's been great. I've learned a lot. I'm sure you have, too. Join in next time at the Faculty Factory Podcast. Check out the website. Send me your references. Go search other references. Check out Ray's article in Academic Medicine 2018 Leadership Development Programs. Thanks a lot, Dr. Lucas.